0: And as you're seated, if you want to turn with me, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. So we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 13, coming back into Matthew and picking up back in the series on the parables. And uh, before Advent, we were looking at some of the parables. And what we talked about then is Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 13, it's a series of seven different parables. And these are stories, but these stories are not given to entertain us. They're given to explain to us why the world is the way it is, why you are the way you are, why your neighbor is the way she is, or your spouse is the way he or she is, or your children are the way they are. It's given to give us a pictorial, metaphorical framework for understanding the world. And they're really designed to unravel mysteries, Unravel mysteries about life. And the mystery we're going to look at, or the one we're going to look at this morning, is the mystery of, all right, how do people change? How does real change happen? Why is change so hard? You know, this is one of the most pressing, vexing questions. You know, I mean, we're eight days into the new year, and how many of you are still doing your New Year's resolutions? Probably already attrition rate by half, at least. So why is change so hard? And these parables, they can be such powerful tools for supernatural transformation. And the way they work is, you know, in one sense, this is not like a large book club where we come together and just kind of talk about uh, this book. The idea is that there's living, like the living power of the living Lord is in his word. And then when God shows up, they, they can awaken. Or maybe to make, change the metaphor, they become, become like time bombs that when they, they explode and they can transform your life, when the Word, it gets into you. And the whole series of Matthew chapter 13 is set up with an understanding. gives us the parables of the four different soils that this seed comes in, but there's all these difficulties from it taking root in our heart. So your heart can be hard. Your heart can be shallow. Your heart can be Distracted. It can be self-indulgent, it can be divided, it can be constantly anxious and worried, and all these things are things that are going to keep the Word from doing its work in your heart. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at a couple different parables. Parables of the seed, the mustard seed, the seed of leaven or yeast, and then the seed of a pearl and treasure. And one of those things you're going to see is if this becomes kind of an operating framework in your mind, it can transform your life. You know, these parables of the seed, the mustard seed, seed of yeast will help us understand. All right, well, how do things that seem so small and insignificant in the beginning, how can they grow? And how can they become these tremendous forces with power? Or things like the treasure and the pearl. What's what's the kingdom worth? What's its values? What is it worth sacrificing for? And these different images can be a comprehensive framework for understanding and making sense of life and how the gospel grows, how the kingdoms grow, how Christ's kingdom grows, how you grow and can change. And what I find so interesting is even the the idea of how people can change is it's a multi-billion dollar business. And so, like, for example, a couple different uh, books that I read this past year. One was great. It was by B.J. Fogg on Tiny Habits. He's the director of the design lab at Stanford. And what's intriguing about the book is, in one sense, the, the, the book is a practical application of Jesus' seed and leaven principle. Or not to be outdone at Stanford was uh, Sean Young's book on uh, the, the scien- like scientifically proven how to transform your behavior. He's a director of the same lab at UCLA. And uh, what's interesting about that book is what science has proven, is that this principle that Jesus gives us is the way change actually happens. And then it's also, you know, not just kind of behavioral scientists, and this is something that, you know, theologians, preachers, people in the church have known for a long time and put emphasis on this. You know, an interesting like dinner table question you can ask people when you find out something they love is like, all right, let's say you're really into like 1960s heavy metal hair rock bands. You say, all right, give me your Mount Rushmore of hair rock bands. Who who are the top? And so, like, people like me, so if you're ever around, like, theological nerds, you say, all right, give me your Mount Rushmore, the greatest theologians in church history. And it's not quite as fun of a question, because the first three, there's an answer, and if they don't say the first three, then, then it's just wrong. But do <laughs> you have Augustine, Aquinas, and Calvin, and so really the only fun part of the discussion is who gets that fourth spot. And... I would be tempted to put Herman Bovink in there, the great Dutch theologian from the 18th into 18th, early 19th century. But what's interesting is whenever Bovink would like go, people would think, right, we, we know he's really smart, but he always talks about the same thing. And he would go, and every time he talked to teenagers, he was a professor taught at seminary. Every time he talked to young people, he said, If you understand the image of the pearl and the leaven, these images, it'll transform your life. Like, this is the framework for understanding that the gospel is a pearl, it is a treasure, it is more valuable than anything else, and it's worth everything you have living for, selling out for. Pursue it, it is so valuable. This gospel is the greatest treasure on earth. But then it's also like leaven, that it works itself into you and into the world, and it'll permeate everything. And so he would tell them over and over and over, it's just these images can get down into your heart. It'll it'll transform you. So let's look at this first one in Matthew chapter 13 and ask for some help. Ask the Lord to help us get these images down into our hearts. So picking up Matthew 13 verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Then he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So just a couple things to notice. So two very simple kind of homespun images. This is just a simple domestic scene with a man and a woman. It's almost like a snapshot that could be from any ordinary day. He's going to go out in the field and he's going to plant. She's going to start working on the bread, getting it ready for the meal. Simplest kind of mundane domestic image. But then there's a couple of hmm. That's interesting. You know, people often will kind of, you know, well, actually, kind of well, actually, Jesus. Well, actually, the mustard seed's not the smallest. There's other smaller. He knew that. This would be, if you had, like, in an agrarian society, you'd have all your seeds kind of lined up to plant. It would have been the smallest, like, in the workshop, that they would have the smallest one. It would grow. He knew it was a bush, not a tree. That's not the point. The point is that these incredibly small things, with, with the right tending and caring can grow into these massive things. What type of kind of garden tree would have been? Two types of mustard seeds. Some can grow up to 8 to 12 feet. Other ones can grow up to 25 feet. So either way, these large image. And so the point is that don't be deceived by the smallness of the seed. There's power. Even though it seems so small and insignificant, but then there's an interesting twist because what does he say is going to happen to that great mustard tree? You're, you're going to yield a hundredfold of mustard and you're going to be the heir to Grey Poupon? You know, the, the birds of the, the, the sky, the birds of the heavens are going to find rest and shade And Jesus is actually riffing off Ezekiel 17, where the Lord says, Thus said the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar and under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shades of its branches birds of every sort will nest and all the trees of the field shall know that i am the lord i bring the low i bring low the high tree and i make high the low tree dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish i am the lord i have spoken i will do it And so it's this image that uh, in the prophecy in Ezekiel is that he's going to take kind of a sprig from a mighty cedar. And he's going to move it and he's going to plant it. And that cedar is going to become this massive, amazing tree. And all the birds from all the the kind of the nations are going to flock and find refuge. But kind of notice Jesus' rift. You know, if you had to be compared to a tree, this might be another interesting dinner table question. If you had to be a tree, what kind of tree would you like to be? And uh, anyway, so an oak tree, a redwood tree, a sequoia, a cedar. And then notice how he's shifted it's a mustard seed, a mustard tree. I don't know if anybody would pl- pick a mustard plant, but there's a subtle inversion. You know, that we want to be strong and mighty, but then here's something just simple and ordinary. If people desire to be strong and mighty, few want to be simple. An ordinary. So there's a twist, but then there's also a twist on the measure because this woman who's taken she's taken yeast or leaven. She's working it into the dough. But notice how much it's three measures, or that's fifty pounds of dough. Now, when we were in Louisville, we worked at a I worked at a cafe and bakery, and about once every several weeks, we, the truck would come in and we had to unload the fifty pound sacks of flour. And I used to tease with the guys I was working with. I mean, think about this. There's people your age all around this town who are paying money every day to go to a gym. And they have to carry. They're telling them to carry things like this. And you get paid to do it. They didn't appreciate it as much as I thought they should. But you throw on that 50 pound. So she takes a 50 pound uh, measure of flour. And then she's working the, the leaven in. And it's interesting. Why would she need that much flour? This is, it's not that she just has three teenage boys and they eat that much. She's preparing a feast. This is a banquet for over a hundred people at least. So there's something so interesting. It's going to grow and it's going to offer shade. It's going to be a place of refuge and safety, but it's also going to produce a feast where people can come. But in both cases, the key point is what starts small either eventually grows or it permeates out into everything. It's active, even though the way it's working is not always visible. It starts on the inside and then works out. And for people looking from the outside, you know, the smallness of the seed can be offensive. Like, that's so insignificant, that little bitty mustard seed. Or the simplicity of working the yeast in can be off-putting. You know, the danger for the disciples is they're always tempted to find more uh, razzle-dazzle. More, more uh, spectacular, more effective, more attractive ways of going about doing the work. But then you look back from the hindsight of history and you think it's really amazing. You know, there's been nothing like this movement that this poor Palestinian peasant launched 2,000 years ago. Truly, has been the most remarkable seed. It's been the most remarkable leaven. You know, there's been nothing like this. The story of the Jewish carpenter's son from this backwoods town has been one of the most transformative things that's moved people intellectually all throughout history. It's been one of the most transformative things that's moved people and give them stability and security emotionally. It's been nothing like it. It's been one of the most transformative things that's compelled people out into the world with a sense of, of mission and to give and to serve and to sacrifice their life. I mean, just think about how remarkable it is, you know, even emotionally. You know, Every person in this room who's a Christian could probably tell you a story of a time they walked through a difficult night, a difficult season, a difficult situation, and it was here that they found stability and comfort and hope. We're gonna pray for, at the end of the service, for one of the families in our church who've been plunged in the most just awful night. And you think, what is the ray of hope they're clinging to? It comes from the words of this Jewish carpenter's son 2,000 years later. Or you think about the way that his people have spread out into the world to transform it. It's amazing. Here's a little trivia question. So, not counting governmental agencies, do you know what the largest uh, humanitarian and relief agency in the United States is? Anybody want to guess? Red Cross. Red Cross, Red Cross is, is number one. So, what's the origins of the Red? Like you don't have to be a, you don't have to be Herman Bavinck or a theologian. Their name is the Red Cross. Where did did that come from? Do you know what number two is? Church is on the right track, but which one? Southern Baptist Convention. The second largest, not counting FEMA, Red Cross, and the Southern Baptist Convention is the second largest humanitarian aid agency in the country. And then you go out and you look at the ones in the world. You think about the ones who are out in the world, like World Vision and Doctors Without Borders. What gave rise to all of those things? You know what's interesting? You look at the top 15 humanitarian agencies in the world. Do you know what's not on the list? The Atheist United Corporate Club. And you think, well, why? Why is it that this movement from this Jewish carpenter son has caused such dramatic transformation out all throughout? Because his his word is, is both seed and it's leaven. So just from a purely historical standpoint, nothing has transformed the world like this. But you think, all right, well, how about you, personally? Like, how does this actually affect you? And one of the things that, or two things that this can do is understanding these images can provide for you, the first thing is meaning in the mundane. It, It dignifies the daily. It provides meaning in the mundane. So let me kind of craft a scenario And let's see if it resonates as we think about all right. How can we find meaning life in the mundane? So tell you a story about a very mundane, ordinary morning. A morning in one sense so familiar that it just seems remarkable or unremarkable. So one morning you wake up feeling mildly overwhelmed by the pressures of life. It's been two weeks since you've come back from vacation. While you were on vacation, your family has fallen victim to this various combinations of flu, maybe, cold, maybe, sniffles, maybe, COVID, maybe. Uh, Everybody's complaining. No one feels well. So over the holidays, not only did that happen, but over the holidays, your schedule, your normal rhythms, your sense of routine not only have been disrupted, they've been completely exploded. You know, it's been a week since you've come back from vacation and you feel like you need a vacation from your vacation. You're out of your routine. You feel half sick, heart weary. And you actually are being beset by one of the most, uh, uh, the real pandemic of all human maladies, this nameless, vague mishmash of like low level stress, distraction, preoccupation with responsibilities, ambient anxiety, and this insipid—it's just irritability that seems to overtake you. You do not begin this day as a flourishing fountain of joy and life. You are not a garden of peace and serenity. You know you're on edge. You know you're dull. So where does God meet you? Like, should you go looking for a burning bush in the wilderness somewhere so he'll talk to you? Do you need to go to like a conference with 50,000 other people singing praises to lift you out of the doldrums? Where is God going to meet you with his gifts, his word, and his spirit? Where do you get refreshed, renewed, reoriented? You're already running late, but you know it's time for your morning devotions. You're going to read. It's only January 8th, and you are going to read the Bible through uh, at least halfway this year. And you're already frustrated because you opened up your email app, and you knew you shouldn't have looked at that, but now you're spinning, and you've lost time. So, all right, I'm going to do today's daily reading, and you open up today's daily readings in Deuteronomy. you like, oh, that's not very encouraging. But you keep going. Secretly, you're not very expectant. And then you open up to verse 32, and it says, He, the Lord, that's the Lord, he found him, Jacob, in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. And the little seed of the word, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that word takes root and it slowly starts to sprout. The Lord plants it in your heart, and right there at your table you got from Ikea in a suburb of Orlando on this early day in January, the Holy Spirit takes hold of things written a long time ago in a place far, far away, and the Lord begins to clarify your mind. He begins to reawaken your faith. He begins to animate your obedience. First, a light may be shined down on the phrase of the apple of his eye, and that you realize that in these times where it feels like a whole weeks are just castaways, or maybe you you feel like you're a castaway. He's the one who rescues. He finds. And you you start to take life. And what does it mean to be regarded as the apple of his eye? It becomes life-giving. And you hear the words the Lord encircles. The Lord cares. The Lord watches over. And you begin to perk up. Slowly come to life. Or perhaps the image that really strikes you is of the, the, the Lord walking with his people through the howling wilderness You know what it's like to walk through the howling wilderness or maybe you spent some time hiking or camping in such a place that could be a howling wilderness. And you realize that's exactly how you feel amidst the life's uh, pressures and you hold on to one of those little words and they become like a seed that begins to bring forth fruit of love, joy, peace, patience. They begin to become like leaven that then begin to work itself out into every area of life, and it permeates all you do. You know, that little scenario was a dramatized account of what David Pallison and his wonderful class that he used to teach at CCF called The Dynamics of Biblical Change. And it was just described one morning where him and his wife, uh, Nan, were just struggling in the doldrums. And as they opened up the word and read it together, it was that passage that began to strike. He said, this is how it happens. This is how the Lord changes us. It's in the midst of the mundane. The word speaks. You have a small little word that speaks exactly where you are that day. And when those come together, that's how transformation happens. So you think as you look through the word, it's just a word. How would your life be? Like even in Deuteronomy 32, how would your life be different if you believe that? If you held on to that. One of the things Tim Keller tries to ask himself almost every time he's reading through the Bible devotionally is he'll pick out a little word or sentence or phrase and say, all right, how would my life be different if this truth was explosively real in my heart? Like if I really knew this, how would my life be different? It gives meaning to the mundane. But also helps us understand these images and understanding them will help provide power to persevere. Power to keep going. You know, if you look just historically, we talk about the way that nothing has permeated and gone through society and transformed it quite like Christ and his church. But if you go back to when Jesus is speaking these words, or even just a couple of years later to how his, his followers probably looked out in, in the world, um, the church wasn't an impressive sight. <laughs> You know, it's almost be comical when he tells them at the Sermon on the Mount, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then I hear that like, Hold on. Hey, him? This guy? He hadn't had a bath in three days. He's the salt of the earth. You talking to us? No way. And then you look, you could be very discouraged, like other you know you had this incredible moment at the day of Pentecost, but other than that, it seems like the church is just it's just limping along. You can go to Philippi, and you see places like, you know, it seems something good is starting. There's a group of women praying down by the river, but there's only a handful of them. There's one lady who the Lord opens up her heart. Her name's Lydia. She lets us in, but it's, I mean, what is that? There's one jailer who experiences transformation, but, I mean, what is that? From all outward appearances, it would seem like Caesar, not Jesus, is the one who's ruling and reigning. From all outward appearance, it would seem like Caesar is the all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful one. If you go to the blazes of power, if you went to the marketplace, if you went to the theaters and into the streets, it would look like he's the one who's reigning. If you're just a kind of normal Jewish peasant who's trying to follow Christ, you look around and say, like, is this it? It does not look like we're winning, You would see the opposition and the setbacks and the loss and the rejection and the rise of heresies and defections all around you. And you think this eternal empire of Rome is so strong, so stable, so secure, and we're so weak and frail. But that's just from their perspective. You know, we can look back from ours and it's almost comical because it's been 1,500 years since that empire that seems so strong has even existed You know, 1,500 years, but Christ's kingdom, like that mustard seed that Jesus planted in Galilee 2,000 years ago, has grown into the tree that's the biggest, the largest, the longest-lasting empire in history. These other empires, the Egyptian, the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Aztec, the Ottoman, the Roman, the Mongol, they've all come and they've all gone. And this one is still here. And so what that can do is give you a tremendous ballast to help you in the midst of discouragement. So if you're in ministry and find yourself tempted to be discouraged, the sea can help you. You know, I think about this sometimes. You know, it's kind of interesting. You know, sometimes the battle to get discouraged. Like, all right, well, why why do more people not come? Like if word got out in our neighborhood that Miley Cyrus was singing this morning, how many empty chairs do you think there would be? All of Hopefully, that would, be, that would be great. Hopefully, that would prove. And so our word got out that Justin Bieber was coming. Hopefully, we have people who have better taste than, than coming. That's right. And you might think, well, why? Why can they fill up arenas but coming to hear the resurrected Lord? And the call is just keep planting. Just keep planting. Just keep sowing. Just keep working. Andrew Peterson has a great line that says, your perspective of the rain changes when you've planted seeds in the ground. And so you think, all right, what area are you tempted to be discouraged? Maybe it's an area of parenting where you're just tempted to be discouraged. You, know, you feel exhausted, like you've exhausted. You, know, you look at a certain situation or one of your children and you think, I don't know what to do with you. I've exhausted all my options. I feel like I've exhausted all the approaches, all forms of consequences, and nothing is working. You've tried being calm. You've tried being consistent. You've tried appealing to their conscience. You've tried praying. You've tried pleading. You've tried bribing, and you've tried bullying. And nothing seems to help. What do you do? Actually, every day this week, I prayed for all of you parents in the church, and this is what I prayed every day, that the, you parents would keep God's commands on your hearts and in your head all throughout the day, that his call to be loving, patient, selfless, truthful, gentle, self-controlled, forgiving, and repentant would permeate all you do, that these qualities would make a difference in the way you parent, even in the mundane busyness, of making the school run, of washing dishes, doing laundry, disciplining bath time, sports practice—all of these things—that it would leaven, it would work itself into all. Just keep planting, just keep working. You know, in one sense, maybe you're here. You know, sometimes it's just here. There'd be such a tendency to, oh, you know, this one is sniffling. This is hard to get up and out. We're just gonna stay home. You just keep. You're here. Congratulations. Keep planting. Keep planting. You know, compounding interest is one of the most powerful forces in the universe, but the only way it works is if you continually reinvest. And so every time you act, every time you try, every time you leaven something into them, it's reinvesting. St. Augustine, who absolutely would be the first on the Mount Rushmore of great theologians, um, and when he was leading his church in Hippo, uh, 403, barbarians surround Rome. Rome falls, and then in the 420s, they surround Hippo. So the last part of his ministry, every, uh, they had church every day. Every day when he's coming, he's preaching, and there are literally barbarians at the gate, surrounding. And people would come looking for help, refuge, hope. And one of the things he says, the world's rulers are preoccupied with solving short-term problems which can change dramatically from week to week. It says, but the church here in this building, we think in centuries. Our task is to be a vehicle of the proclamation of God's kingdom and the gospel from now till the end of time. He says, you know, we think in centuries. While back, I heard an interview with a man who his family had, had uh, is in a family business. They had run a, a tree kind of harvesting farm just outside the Bavarian National Forest in Germany. And some of the oldest, uh, most sought-after wood in the world. Some of the wood that they used to make, things like the Stradivarius violin and things like that. And he was talking about how they have their tree farm, kind of the loop of what they harvest, is on a 500-year loop. So they think in harvest cycles of 500 years. And that's just such a different perspective. So, how can you know? How can you know these things can be true? You know, one thing is it can give meaning to the mundane, it can give us uh, the power to persevere. You know, how can we know these things can be true, even when it doesn't look like it? There's one that we can look to Christ. You know, it was true of Jesus himself. You know, this one who was born of a peasant girl in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire, cradled in a manger, a refugee from infancy living insignificantly in a backwoods town, nowhere to lay his head, no home to call his own, hounded by those who had influence, murdered on a cross, buried in a borrowed tomb. And yet it was seed and leaven that's that's transformed the world. But what did he warn them? What did he tell them about how does a seed do its work? What does it have to do before it can bear fruit? It must go into the ground and die. And so the seed has to fall into the ground and die. And his cross is a great sign that this is the path by which we enter life. So every week at Trinity, we come and we we partake of the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is that this is a physical, tangible reminder of the most potent, powerful seed that has ever been planted in the earth. That it's the seed of his life that was uh, planted in the ground and it burst forth bringing the fruit. So let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you and your mercy sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for us and our salvation. And by the Holy Spirit, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And then in full obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms on the cross and he offered himself once and for all that through his suffering and death, we might be saved. And by his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. And now as our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand, and he calls to us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So we come. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after the supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many. This is for the forgiveness of sins whenever you do this. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And in taking, we proclaim the great mystery that's the most powerful and potent seed, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again. Now, this time of our service, we also kind of transition, and we think about we not only receive from him the tremendous gift of his son, but we think about the honor it is to give back to him a portion of what he's blessed us with, So here at Trinity, there's a couple of ways you can give. We have a box out there that you can give or you can give online. We want you to meditate and think that he's given us his most precious gift. How can we give our lives away for him? Now let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the potency and power of your living word. And we confess that too often we can be so easily discouraged. Too often we can ignore or... Um, not be mindful of the mundane aspects of life, so we ask that you help us, help anyone here who's coming to this room discouraged, take a, a small seed from your word and plant it into their minds and heart and let it grow to bring about peace and joy and comfort and hope. And I pray for all of us as we go through our everyday, just normal rhythms and routines of life. Help, we ask that your, your peace and your presence would permeate every single One of those things. this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.